Let's take our Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 3. Kids, you know what to do. Some of you are already heading out before the boring stuff starts. It's good to be back. Enjoyed my time away with family. Had the privilege of preaching at my son's church, and uh, that was so much fun to get to minister the Word of God. I think I shared last time, I'm Rob 1.0. They refer to him as Rob 2.0. I'm the older, clunkier version, and, uh, but still gets the job done. So uh, thankful for that. Had a wonderful time yesterday. Uh, these, this plant in front of you is to honor uh, 50 years of marriage for Jim and Clydia Milham. So we rejoice with them in remembering that milestone. And you know, it's proper that we remember those wonderful milestones in people's lives. Fifty years is a great accomplishment, especially nowadays. It's a rare thing. But there are other things that we remember that aren't as pleasant aren't as celebratory. Today marks 15 years since the terrible tragedy of 9-1-1. Not just in New York, but in Washington and in a field in Pennsylvania, people lost their lives because of the cruelty of people who were opposed to our way of life. It's a time for us to remember that day and It's a time for us to remember some of the things that were initially accomplished for our country to the good on that day. We remember that there was a unity in our country 15 years ago that was beautiful and that was encouraging. We remember that our legislatures stood on the steps of the Capitol and sang, God bless America, even though in just a few years they would pass laws that would try to exclude God from public life. Memory is a short thing sometimes, isn't it? I remember an influx of people coming to church looking for comfort and hope. But within a year or two, we go back to our routines. We go back to forgetting what we're supposed to remember And then we only remember it on occasion, as a passing thought, as a day of remembrance, and we pass on. Memorial Day, case in point, to many, it's a picnic day. We forget that it symbolizes remembering those who have served our country and lost their lives. People are fickle. Our memories are short. And it's not just characteristic of people in our nation and in our day. It's characteristic of people in general. And really, that's something that Malachi addresses in his book. If you remember, Malachi writes during a time when Israel had been miraculously returned to Jerusalem. They had the privilege of being able to rebuild the temple and the walls around Jerusalem, there was restoration, there was celebration. People were enjoying being able to reconnect with their heritage 
and to reconnect with worshiping God as they had wanted to for so long. But during the time of Malachi, after all of those miraculous things, the mundane had settled back in and people forgot God. You know, as I look at my life, I find that it is often easy to get distracted, to forget that I need to remember God. We become enmeshed in the things around us. We buy in to the distractions of this world, and we forget who God is and how important he should be to us. What Malachi shares with us in chapters 3 and 4 are a couple of important perspectives. The people of Israel really needed to reroute. They needed to move from their distraction and their complacency and turn back to God. And you know, I think that's a message that we need to hear today as well. As followers of God, there should be passion as we follow God. We should keep perspectives in mind that point us to that passionate following. And the first perspective we want to talk about is this. Remember what is truly important. Now, when Malachi is addressing the children of Israel, he's offering hope. When we close the second chapter, the prophet shares with us that the people had wearied the Lord, verse 17 of chapter 2, with their words. And when they asked how they had wearied God with their words, they said, all who are doing evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or they were saying, where is the God of justice? So, The way they wearied God was by them saying, look, I see evil. I see terrible things that happen all around me, and God doesn't care. And even if he does care, he's not going to ever dispense justice. They were becoming discouraged with God. They were losing perspective on who God is and what God can accomplish. So as a result, the diminished view that they had of God caused them to live disobedient lives. And isn't that the way it always goes? When we view God as we should view God, we will be obedient. But when we diminish our view of God, we will become disobedient because if it doesn't matter to God that evil and terrible things go on outside our walls, why would it matter if I am disobedient inside the walls as a follower of God? So Malachi is reminding his readers that they need to remember that God is the most important thing in their life. They need to lose the distraction and focus like a laser on God. That's what God calls us to. So what we find first in this third chapter is Malachi is calling us to remember the truly important things of life. We need to respond to God as we should, or we're going to face being refined. Look at these verses. The Word of God 
and this is God speaking here in this first verse, says this. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, when we look at this, we think, okay, I don't understand the answer. The question was, how will you show justice, God? That's the bottom line of the question from chapter 2. And then God immediately starts talking about two messengers. If we don't look at the context of who these messengers are, it's not going to make sense. So let's talk about who these messengers are in order to understand the text. In answer to the question, where is the justice of God? God is saying, I am sending my messengers into this world to accomplish things. And the first messenger mentioned is that one that says in the first verse, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. The first messenger is one who prepares the way for God. So who is that? Well, we know in the New Testament that this messenger identified as the one who will prepare the way before him is none other than John the Baptist. We know this because Jesus identifies him or an angel identifies him. And it says this, this is the one about whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. An identification of John the Baptist because in the context of Matthew chapter 11, this is who he was speaking of. Now, what role did John the Baptist fulfill? John the Baptist had a message to the people of Israel. And you know what his message was? Prepare for the coming of the Messiah. That was purely his message. And you know how he prepared the people for the coming of the Messiah? Recognize your sin. Israel had fallen into a place of complacency when God himself in the person of Jesus Christ would come, he wasn't recognized, he was rejected because people held on to sin rather than turning from their sin to God. So in answer to the question, where is the justice of God, Malachi begins by sharing that God will do something unexpected. He is sending a Messiah and there is a messenger who will prepare the way for this Messiah and that's Part one, as far as the answer of the justice of God. Why did the Messiah come? Why did Jesus come? John the Baptist prepares the way for him, but what was the ministry, the mission of this messenger who came? And the answer is very simple. To take care of a son of man. Jesus Christ, identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that was the message of this messenger who would prepare the way. He was pointing people to Jesus. He was telling them that this is the one of whom the Old Testament prophesied who would come and heal us of our sin by his stripes, by the cross. The suffering Messiah was God's first answer to justice. 
Justice will never be met by people doing good things, living good lives. None of us can hit that bar. So God would send one who could bring forgiveness and transformation when we believe in him. That's the promise. That's the preparation by this first messenger so that people would be ready to receive Jesus. And I would say to you that none of us are ready to receive Jesus until we recognize our need and until we recognize our sin. The message of John the Baptist is as important today as it was in the first century. We need to recognize our need, our sin, in order to come into a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. Now, there's another messenger mentioned here as well. In addition to the messenger who would prepare the way, there's another messenger mentioned who is spoken of in this first verse as well. It says, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to the temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, who in the world is the messenger of the covenant? I believe that the two messengers point to the two advents or appearances of our Lord. The first messenger who prepared the way pointed to the first coming of Jesus Christ when he would die on the cross. But you know, Jesus is coming again. Though he was crucified, he was risen. He ascended to the right hand of God. But there is a promise that we find in Scripture. And that promise is this, he's coming again. Jesus Christ is coming again. And at that point, justice will become prevalent. We will see experientially the justice of God as he shuts down sin, as he deals with sin, as he purifies his people. Where in the first coming, people could resist the coming king. In the second coming, they will not. Jesus will prevail. So what we see here is indication that God's justice doesn't always fit our expectations. God has a purpose and a plan that unfolds that may not be something that we understand or that we anticipate, but it's always effective. It always accomplishes God's purpose, God's plan, and we need to remember that. So in his message to Israel, look at how he describes this second coming when the messenger of the covenant comes. Look at verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So the spiritual leaders of Israel will be refined by Jesus so that although they have turned away at the return of Jesus Christ, 
they will turn to him. Today, many Israelites do not recognize Jesus as Messiah. That will change. There will be a turning of the Israelites from their rejection of Messiah to an acceptance of the Messiah. And God will refine them like silver or gold, taking out the impurities. I'm told that when a refiner back in the first century would refine gold, they would heat it up and all of the impurities would come to the top and then they would scrape away the impurities and when they were finished, the surface of the gold would be like a mirror, particularly true of silver, just like a mirror. So when the refiner could see his image in that which was being refined, the process was done. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what God does with us and will do with Levites? We will reflect the image of Jesus Christ as he refines us. But looking forward, the people of Israel who have long rejected God, even their leaders, will turn and recognize Jesus for who he is. But then the text moves on. As we come to this refining that will take place, it transitions in the fifth verse to talk about the spiritual climate of Malachi's day. And look at what it says in verse 5. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice because they do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Is God unaware of all of the evil that goes on in the world? Absolutely not. It's cataloged for us right here in the fifth verse. God is long-suffering. God is patient. But eventually the time comes when people must face the consequences of their sin. And that's the warning that we find here. God will come near to those who are engaged in these things with judgment. They don't get a pass. They face the judge for the sin that they commit. So, as Malachi is writing this to the children of Israel, perhaps running through some of their minds, they're thinking, oh, God's going to utterly destroy us, and we deserve it. But then we come to the sixth verse. And what we find here is so encouraging. Remaining the people of God is based on God's faithfulness. Look at the sixth verse. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. You know what he's saying here? God entered into a covenant relationship with the children of Israel that was unconditional. He made the promise to Abraham that there would be a people who would be his people. 
going forward. Unconditional covenant between God and Abraham. And so you know what God is saying? Look, (laughs) you've been faithless. But even though you are faithless, I remain faithful. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that my relationship with God is based on the faithfulness of God. If it were based on my own faithfulness, yikes. I mess up. Let me let you in on a secret. You do too. But God never does. We have a faithful God. And because God is faithful, he didn't destroy the children of Israel. Look at verse 7. It really gives us a, a flavor for just how bad things had gotten. It says, ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from me and my decrees and have not kept them. This is where the spiritual climate of Israel had descended. Consistently, they had turned away from God, and yet God keeps them in relationship. Why? Because God is faithful. He had made a covenant that they would be his people, and he holds that covenant. This morning we sang the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And really, it portrays what is articulated here. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Listen again to the words. I promise you I won't sing them. But it says this. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. That's why we're not destroyed. Because of the faithfulness of God. But then we come to that seventh verse, and we see an invitation. Return to God, and he will return to you. So what do we see? We see coming that that God provided Jesus Christ, and the way was prepared by a first messenger. We see that Jesus is coming again, and he will set things straight. But in between the first advent of Jesus Christ and the second advent of Jesus Christ, We're living. And as we live in this time, we have some decisions that we need to make. And one of the most important decisions that we have to make is this. If I have gotten off track and I need to reroute, God issues an invitation to us. Return to me and I will return to you. There's an old cliche. If you're not as close to God as you once were, guess who moved? Right? It's us. But even though that is the case, God offers an important invitation to us. Return to me, and I will return to you. For Israel, they had drifted as a people. They had gotten distracted. In the first two chapters, Malachi talks about how they were bringing lame and injured animals to offer to God that had no value, but they were just going through the motions of worship without thinking about who God is and what they were doing. Those were the people that needed 
to return to God. Now, when God says, return to me, look at the response of the people. Right at the close of that seventh verse, God hears this response from the people. But you ask, how are we to return? And then Malachi shifts into a passage that many people claim is the favorite passage of pastors in the Old Testament. It talks about giving. And it says this, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. So they're saying, how are we to return? God responds, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? And here's God's response. In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room for it. Now, when we come to this part of the text, again, a lot of times pastors just camp out, and a lot of people think the only thing about Malachi is tithing, but there's so much more here. Does God need our tithe? Absolutely not. What is a tithe? Now, we consider a tithe 10% of our take-home pay. When we look in the Scripture, the arrangement that God had with Israel was so much more than that. Many have factored it to be about 30% of what they had because not only was it take-home pay, it was assets. But understand that Israel was in a covenant relationship with God, and so this tithe that God was requiring of Israel was a statement of faith. It was basically the understanding that I tithe not only what I make but what I own because all of it belongs to God and I trust him because we've entered a covenant and in that covenant God says that if I give faithfully of my material resources that God will provide blessing as a result. The children of Israel had forgotten that. They were bringing in things of no value and expecting God to be satisfied and to bless them. So as a result, they were really saying to God, God, Just be satisfied with whatever I bring because it's left over and it's good enough. And be happy with it. Now, when we look at ourselves, we can identify. But not just with our material resources, with our time, with our affections, with our thought processes. Very often what we wind up doing is giving God our leftovers We give God the leftover time when convenient. We give God our leftover energy when convenient. We give God our leftover material resources. And even sometimes we feel that that isn't convenient at all. Why does God ask for people to give of their time and material resources in service to him? Does God need it? 
No, the scripture tells us that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The scripture tells us that everything belongs to God. God asks us to give of ourselves materially and as far as time. Why? Because we need to. You know what happens when I have material things? That shiny little bobble. Mine. All mine. It's so pretty. I love it. And it's mine. No, you can't have it. You can have a peak, but you can't have it. And it becomes something that we get too connected to and we forget God. We allow the created all too easily to supplant the creator. And as a result, God reminds us the importance of holding what we have with an open hand. And part of holding that with an open hand is to say, this isn't mine, it's God's. I'm a manager of what God's given me, but it's not mine, it's God's. And so in a tangible and real way to acknowledge that I am taking this and giving it to God out of reverence and worship for him. It's for my benefit, not for God's. Now, for the children of Israel, there was a promise. You give and test me in this and see if I won't open up the floodgates and bless you. You see, a part of the covenant relationship that Israel had with God is this. When they give, according to the covenant that God had entered into with Moses, God would protect and provide bumper crops for the children of Israel. It was really a faith thing that was involved here. I will trust God by taking this perfect lamb and giving it to God. I will trust God by taking the first fruits of my harvest, giving it to God. I will do all of these things and give them to God because I worship the creator, not the created. Because I recognize that this is a part of the covenant that I've entered into. As the children of God today, I think we need to think in the same way. All that I have is a blessing from God. And God will supply my needs. And I can trust him that as I am obedient to him, God will provide abundantly. We find in the New Testament some promises to New Testament believers that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So we can count on that fact. So returning to God means that we do this in a very practical way. We don't just step up in front of the church and say, yeah, you know, it's time for me to live a godly life. That's a good thing to do. But if all that I share in my small group or before the church or with other friends is a collection of words, it doesn't mean a whole lot. The true test of returning to God will be my actions. Am I living 
in a way that shows that I am a follower of God. And one of the practical ways that I do that is by taking the material resources that God has entrusted to me and giving to his work to demonstrate that I'm committed to that. Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If I value the material things of this life to the exclusion of heaven, then my heart is not in the right place. And I need to direct that heart toward God. Now as we come to the next part of this passage, we find that in Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, there is a promise that right and righteousness will prevail. And there is a perspective that we need to have concerning that, that there will be a reward for righteousness, and it's surely going to come. Malachi is calling people to obedient lives. Isn't it easy to say, well, man, I do all this obedient stuff and I don't see any return immediately for it? What we need to remember is this. Sometimes we don't see the immediate return, but there is surely a return that is coming. No doubt about it. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord (coughs) talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Does God keep a record of the good things that we do, you'd better believe it. And we're rewarded for what we do. Nobody else may see it. Nobody else may recognize it, but God does. And so this is an encouragement to the faithful remnant of Malachi's time, but it's an encouragement to us as well. The things that you do for God, the sacrifices that you make, are all seen by God. And there's a scroll of remembrance that's being written with all of those things being done. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that what really counts? Whether I get a pat on the back in this life or recognition in this life is irrelevant. That lasts for the few seconds that you feel the pressure of somebody's hand on your back. That's it. What really counts is the scroll of remembrance that God keeps. And God will keep that. God remembers. Look at what it goes on to say in verse 17. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, and that day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them. Just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves with him. So not only do you have the reward, the recognition, but you have relationship with God. You have that closeness of intimacy with the Father. When we live obedient lives, there's intimacy with God. That's being promised right here in this text. And then look at verse 18. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between those who serve God and those who do not. 
Look, if we look and we say good people don't get any reward, bad people get all of the reward, we don't have the right perspective. We're looking short term. Long term, God sorts these things out. Long term, God rewards the righteous. Long term, God punishes the wicked. And that brings us to the next part of our sermon. Righteousness and right will prevail. Now, we're going to move through this at a much more rapid pace than the third chapter. But let's look at some perspectives that are shared in this. First of all, I think I must have given this the double click. There we go. (laughs) The old Jimmy thumb came into effect. But first of all, what we want to see is this, this reward for the righteous will surely come. We did cover that. Still on vacation in the brain. But what we find is also this. We revere the name of God and see the Son of Righteousness rise. Look at this fourth chapter. It says this, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace, and the arrogant and the evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord. Not a root or a branch will be left of them. Now, those are strong words that we find there, aren't they? We need to honor the name of the Lord because choosing a path, and we have two paths we can choose, righteousness or wickedness. If I choose to go the path of wickedness, there are consequences. God will hold me accountable. While I'm in the midst of my wickedness right now saying, (laughs) nothing's happening, I'm okay. I don't need to worry about it. I'm invincible. There's going to come a time where I give an account before God Almighty. And let me tell you something. Our time on planet Earth is a minute. It's a glimpse. I don't care how old a person is that you talk to. They look back over their life and they say, man, it went by so fast. It's fast. So even if we live a lifetime of getting away with wickedness, guess what? We have an eternity where we're going to have it dealt with. That's the perspective that we need to keep. So we need to revere God because of that truth. But then, look at verse 2. In contrast to the wicked who will face the consequences of their wicked behavior. In verse 2 it says, But for you who revere my name, and I love this imagery, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Isn't that beautiful poetry that we find? There will come that day for the righteous where they will be repaid for their righteousness. And the promise is, first of all, the son of righteousness rising. Now, we know the son of righteousness as Jesus, and that's S-U-N, not S-O-N, the son of righteousness. But the imagery is beautiful. If you've ever been on a camp out where you're pre-dawn and it is dark, and you're wondering if the night is ever going to end, 
because you have dew on your sleeping bag and because that rock that you pitched your tent over has been in your back all night. You step outside the tent while it's still dark and you look and you see the horizon and it starts to get a little light and a little more light and then the sun rises. The darkness, the night is over. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the life of the righteous? God promises that for us who are followers. Look at the other image, a calf being released from the stall. Now, have any of you ever seen a a calf just go on a romp? It is so cute. They jump up in the air and they bounce around. It looks like they have springs in their legs. They have these little spindly legs, but they are all over the place, jumping back and forth. It's a true picture of joy. Isn't it good to know that even though our world is a mess and we see wickedness and It wears us down that there is coming a time where there will be joy for the righteous. No longer under the thumb of the unrighteous, we will go forth free and joyfully. That's the promise of this text. As the people of God, this is where we need to see our future. Look at verse 3. Then you will trample down the wicked... They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. You know what the bottom line is? God wins. And we need to join ourselves with God himself. You want to be a victor? Join with God. Choose the right path. Final part of the text. We need to respond to God's call. Look at verses 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. There are two prophets that are mentioned in the closing verses, and one of the prophets is Moses. And what God is calling the children of Israel to do and the righteous to do is to remember that there are moral laws that God has given us that count, that matter, that we need to follow. So the call is to respond to what God has shown us by his revelation that is right and wrong and pursue that which is right. There's another prophet mentioned, and that's Elijah. Look at verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Elijah is coming. And what we find is this. Many in John the Baptist's day thought that John the Baptist was the prophet Elijah because he came before Jesus. But what we find the word of God say is this, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him to the spirit and power of Elijah. Not that he was Elijah, but that he went in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he was accomplishing the things that were prophesied right here in this book to turn the hearts of the fathers back to children and the disobedient to the attitudes of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. But there is many Bible scholars 
who there are many Bible scholars who believe that the prophet Elijah mentioned here who will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord when Jesus returns and dispatches the wicked, that Elijah is one of two witnesses that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. During the tribulation, there will be two witnesses who come and share with the wicked who are on planet Earth that there's another way. And many believe that Elijah is one of those witnesses. I believe that this is a prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. And in the ministry of Elijah, before Jesus returns, during a time described in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, when terrible things will happen on planet Earth, God still sends a prophet to turn people to God. That is the compassionate God that we serve. Closing Malachi, we find that the Word of God talks about two paths, the paths of righteousness and the paths of wickedness, and we have to choose a path. But to bottom line it, here's something we need to grasp. Ultimately, everyone is going to recognize Jesus as Lord. You know what the Scripture says? Philippians chapter 2. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, the big question is, when do we recognize that? What is so important for us to recognize is this. Understanding that Jesus is who he claimed to be, our Savior, the one who has authority to bring life and forgiveness of sin as Lord. Recognizing him as that person before we die is essential to having relationship with God and forgiveness of sin and experiencing the good promises that we found at the conclusion of Malachi. That's the only way we experience it. However, if I choose never to come to that place to where I embrace Jesus as the Lord who brings forgiveness for sin and a relationship with God, I will experience the curses that are mentioned at the conclusion of the book of Malachi. Separation from God. Judgment await those who refuse to enter into a relationship with the Father through Jesus. The bottom line of all of this, and this is what I want to leave you with, is this. We either find Jesus as Savior or face Jesus as judge. And I'd far rather find him as Savior than face him as judge.